This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And my first guest today, you might know her as the host of Bravo's Top Chef or as one of this year's Time 100 honorees. And now Padma Lakshmi is bringing us a top tier food travel show set in our own backyard. Taste the Nation on Hulu. We were lucky enough to have like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't think I've gotten 100% on anything in my life. So <laughs> I'm very happy about that. So are my relatives in India. <laughs> Taste the Nation just dropped its second season. It's an American food travel show, but it asks a very pointed question. What even is American food? Padma focuses mainly on the food of immigrant communities in the U.S., She tastes dishes from Filipino communities in the Bay Area, Nigerians in Texas, and a Greek enclave in Florida. She argues all these different kinds of foods are just as American as apple pie or any other food that we might think of as non-ethnic. White people food we think of as hot dogs and apple pie and meatloaf, Mm -hmm. you know. Not one ingredient in apple pie is indigenous to North America. (laughs) Not the apples, not the flour, not the butter or lard, not the cinnamon, not Mm. the sugar, not Mm. the nutmeg. But Padma doesn't leave indigenous food out either. And with each dish, the show provides so much context and history that you'll leave feeling both smarter and hungrier. I'm just there with a bunch of fellow nerds, you know, and we all get off on this, you know, we really do. Like, I love it. I sat down with Padma to talk about the new season of Taste the Nation and her Trojan horse of food. Padma Lakshmi, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Hi, thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you. So, The new season of your wonderful show, Taste the Nation, is out now on Hulu. For those who haven't seen season one, could you talk to me about what you do on the show and also what the show's aim is? Sure. The show's title, Taste the Nation, is actually a play on Face the Nation. (laughs) So it is a travel culture and political show Mm -hmm. that uh, is masquerading as a food show. (laughs) It is, of course, also a food show because that is the language with which I process the world. And that's also the language that most people are used to hearing me speak. Hmm. But, you know, it was really an offshoot of my advocacy work with the ACLU. I've been working with them for six or seven years on immigrant rights. Mm -hmm. And I'm an immigrant. And I wanted to explore different communities in America through the lens of food as a Trojan horse in a way, you know, Mm. just as the thing that would get us into these homes and into these people's (laughs) lives. We try to look at the big issue of immigration Mm -hmm. in all of its facets. About Taste the Nation, you've said that the first season is kind of for people that don't really agree that immigrants have a lot to offer this country. Like you're keeping them in mind when designing the show. Now going into the second season, has the framing of the show changed or evolved based upon the work that you did in the first season? No, it it hasn't really. I mean, I created the show specifically 
for people who don't necessarily think like me. Hmm. I hope I created it for everybody and that everyone has a lot to learn because I'm a history nerd and you know that's why you get all that stuff in there. And <laughs> I, yeah, I created the show to do something artistic with my political views hmm. that is more entertaining than me just standing on my soapbox and giving you know a speech at an ACLU rally. I want to talk about sort of the different postures that you have on Top Chef and also on Taste the Nation. Mm -hmm. So, like, on Top Chef, you are kind of a tough critic. Like, people know that you have a well-honed palate and that you know what tastes good. You know when they're hitting the mark. I mean, it was actually said in your Time 100 dedication um, that you were described as unafraid of being disliked on the show. But on Taste the Nation, you take... A different approach. You know, you are an adventurer, you're a traveler, um, and you're not a judge. I wonder, how do you toggle between those two modes uh, in your eating journey, I guess? It's not that hard. First of all, both those shows are very, in different parts of the spectrum of, you know, <laughs> food programming. But I mean, I I know Ali Wong, who's a friend of mine, wrote that, and I took that as like a backhanded <laughs> um, slight that a girlfriend would say about you and get away yeah. with. But the truth is, you know, my job, I hope, is many things on Top Chef, but it's also to give honest feedback in a way that's mm. constructive to the chef and helps them do better in the next challenge should they stay in the show. <laughs> and I'm rooting for them. I'm rooting for all of my contestants. And, you know, I'm there every day with them, and they're like my new sixth-grade class for the season. <laughs> so it's not that I'm afraid to be disliked. I just am afraid not to be truthful. Mm. On Taste the Nation, I don't have to be a judge. I'm coming to them in mm. their house. They're not coming knocking on our studio door and asking to be a contestant. To win. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I am a guest in their home. Um, they're sharing their lives with me. Mm. Uh, we don't pay them, you know, <laughs> like, it's, right, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and so if I want to go there and you know, sort of disrupt their lives. It's because I think they're very worthwhile and I want to talk to them and mm. eat their food. One of the things that me and my team noticed when we were preparing to talk to you and watching your show is how many, like, subtle, important details the show picks up on. So I loved your first episode this season on Puerto Rican pasteles. I currently have 20 in my freezer right now. You do? Do you make them or do you get <laughs> I, them? I don't make them. My husband is originally from Santorce in San Juan in Puerto Rico. My husband knows a woman who makes pasteles in Chelsea and we get them at Christmas time. Really? That's yeah. great. Do you think she'd give me her recipe? She might. I could ask him. Please ask him because yeah, they're good. You know, I really I'm working on the Taste Nation cookbook oh. you know, as well, mm -hmm. which is going to take me a while because <laughs> see above I've been on the road with two shows, but um, but I would love a recipe. And I you know obviously give her credit. Yeah, I mean I made it. You saw the episode. I saw. I, saw I you made it. Episode. But Maria's mom, <laughs> you know, oh. is a tough cookie. She said you put too much dough in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, and then she just kind of mounds it on yeah, top, right? You're covering. <laughs> you know, I'm just curious as part of research. Of to course, see, to yeah. see different recipes. But I mean, you know, in that episode mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico, you got into this debate, like you know, eating pasteles with ketchup 
or no ketchup. And also, I mean, in another episode, you dive deep into the Afghan community in the D.C. area and how they prepare this rice dish, Kabali Palau. And you show that people make it really differently depending on where they're from, when they came to the United States. Do you ever have new Afghani refugees who come to Lapis and say, this is not... Well, it's also like when they lived in Afghanistan, right? Because, you know, there's scarcity, food scarcity with, you know, so many layers of, of war mm. from the Russians to the Mujahideen to the Taliban, to, mm. you know, that there are certain people who don't think it has carrots and raisins because they've never grown up with carrots and raisins because hmm. they just didn't have them. It wasn't available. Mm-hmm. But I mean, th- these subtle differences, the show manages to capture them and turn them into really important parts of conversation, getting into the stories beneath those small differences or differences that seem small until you look deeper into them. I wonder, like, what felt important about investigating those subtle differences in the way that people prepare these dishes they love so much? I think because food can be a metaphor for so many other things. Mm -hmm. And they also are born out of what that culture has gone through or experiences or where it springs from as far as ingredients. Mm -hmm. And the choices we make about food are often much more than about our preference or taste or, you know, availability. I mean, a lot of times it is about food scarcity, but a lot of times there are reasons, you know, that food kind of permeates every aspect of our lives. You know, the only things that we really need to survive are food, water, and love. So, Mm. you know, it's really important. It's like, yes, I'm talking about, you know, preference of ketchup (laughs) or no ketchup, but I'm actually saying, like, do you want this Yankee input into mm. something that is so dear to your heart. Mm. And so those pasteles are Puerto Rico and that ketchup is American, right. you know, presence. I'll put it like that. I think hmm. Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. We don't like to call it that. We call it a territory, but it's actually a colony. We are colonizing Puerto Rico. And I know people who walk around in New York City thinking when they see a Puerto Rican person like, oh, they're immigrants. They're not immigrants. Hmm. They're Americans. Mm-hmm. They have an American passport. Mm-hmm. And we've been occupying their land for a long time. Getting more into how some of these small differences in food preparation have maybe affected your life or shown up in your life. Like, is there a story from your own life where you felt the importance of getting those subtle differences right. Yes. I was six years old and living in Queens Mm. when they consecrated the temple there, the Ganesh Hindu temple. Mm -hmm. And then at some point when I moved back from Europe after modeling in my 20s, I had a pied a terre here in the city. Mm -hmm. I started going back to the temple again in Queens and they opened a canteen in the basement of the Hindu <laughs> temple. And I got to tell you, it made me much more religious. <laughs> so I, we would always go there. We would do a lap around upstairs to all the deities, you know, <laughs> break a coconut, have it blessed by the priest, and then go down and chow down in the mm. cafeteria, like literally with metal folding chairs and orange plastic um, <laughs> tray. And I think they still use like styrofoam separated, you know, those segregated <laughs> places, which is so heinous. But but you can get a mountain of food for like three bucks. Right. And, you know, eating that 
And and having had the goodie bag from doing the ritual offering mm-hmm. upstairs where you always break a coconut, it's, it's called a puja. Mm-hmm. And you also give them the name of a relative and stuff. And so we would bring back those items, usually the coconut and other food items, which is called a prasadam. Mm-hmm. And it's blessed food. And all of a sudden I had fresh coconut. You know, Mm. and now you can get fresh coconut maybe at Whole Foods. But like 10, 15 years ago, you would have to go to Spanish Harlem Mm -hmm. or you would have to go to Patel Brothers in Queens. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I had this fresh coconut. And then I started, you know, eating it because that you eat it always, right, for good luck. But then I started grating it and making coconut chutney. Mm. And so the importance of having that coconut in my kitchen Mm. is monumental because honestly, it makes me feel like home. Mm. You know, the smell of coconut frying with mustard leaves and curry leaves and sesame oil mm-hmm. and that popping sound when it hits the coconut chutney, mm. shh, like that. That is such a sensorial, deep, visceral pleasure that takes me back to the bosom of my grandmother's love. Mm. And that is why. That is why these foods are important, because they contain a multitude. They contain with them all of this experience of being human and being alive and Mm -hmm. being connected to your ancestors and also to your own identity. You know, food tells you who you are. Mm. And it's the way that most immigrant parents pass down their culture Mm. when they're out of, you know, away from the country they grew up or were born in. Food is is the way that so many of us take pride in, celebrate, communicate our heritage, and, and also pass it down to the younger generation among us. One of my favorite moments in the show was in the first season, the third episode, which was about the Indian diaspora community in New York City, where you are from. Oh, in season one, yeah. Yes, in season one. And uh, there's a moment where you're having breakfast with your daughter and you're asking her, like, does she prefer dosa or pancakes? And she wrestles with it back and forth. And you're kind of watching her. And she eventually, she's like, sorry, I do like American pancakes. Yeah. But I, I think I prefer dosas to waffles. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> and it reminded me of so many moments with me and my mom. <laughs> I think about, like, cornbread dressing is a food that is like a staple in Black American households Mm -hmm. at the holidays. I didn't like it until I was 16 or 17 years old. And I know. And it takes forever to make. I know. It's like, you don't like (laughs) what? I know. I know. And that's what it is. And it happened to me with my kid. And I never understood. Like, you know, it has, it's attached with so much baggage mm-hmm. and, and heritage. And so it's like saying, I don't like being black, right? Right, to yeah. Your, to maybe. To, yeah, to it can feel like it, that. Yeah, it can the, feel like that. Yeah, to the caretaker. Yeah, the to the person older, trying yeah. to help you remember who you are. You know, my daughter's also a biracial child mm-hmm. who's growing up in her father's culture, which is, that is what is dominant in, you know, America. her environment. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, it'd be different if she was biracial, but we were living in downtown New Delhi, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, or, yeah, Or Chennai or Kerala. Right, right, so, right, right. So, really, I have, like, 
less of a chance of imbuing, you know, whatever I can. I don't just do it with food, right? She, mm-hmm. You know, I make her sing in Sanskrit, which mm-hmm. she's finally said, look, I enough now. I've had it for six years. <laughs> I'm not taking Carnatic music lessons anymore. Um, she doesn't know what she's saying in Sanskrit. By the way, neither do I. But I recognize, <laughs> I recognize that music from my grandfather singing to me on the mm. veranda when I was sent back every summer to, you know, Madras to Chennai. And... I never got those music lessons because mm-hmm. I, you know, lived mostly in America with a single mom who was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was nobody to teach me classical Indian vocal training. But hearing those songs, hearing that Sanskrit come out of my, you know, seven-year-old child's mouth mm-hmm. and doing, you know, scales and ragas, mm-hmm. it it gives me a deep pleasure that, pierces my soul in a way that is hard to put in words mm. and that is why you better f- eat that cornbread <laughs> I do with a smile, cornbread dressing <laughs> and, smile <laughs> and be like thank you mama <laughs> you know? or whoever made that cornbread but that I is mean, why I mean it's like I, 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 you're getting at this but it, it, I, I think it's very similar like you said with food like even if your child doesn't like it or, or has to develop a taste mm-hmm. for it as they age um, which now it's like the the older I get, it's like I'll such, I'll catch myself like stirring, like just staring into a pot of greens, like on a Sunday, and I'm just like, who is this person? Like, when did she happen? But it's like eventually, I I grew to crave those things. I learned how to prepare them because um, you're craving the warmth of your family. Exactly, exactly. You know? And you know, and you don't have to. I don't have to be black to get that. Yeah, you don't have to be Indian to get. That, you know, what I'm saying about Dal, and for the record, she likes Dal now. <laughs> she does like some other stuff, but she does like Dal, you know. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking with me today. I'm excited for people to see the new season of Taste the Nation. Thank you. I'm excited for everyone to see it. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks again to Padma Lakshmi. Season two of Taste the Nation is out now on Hulu. Coming up, unpacking the complicated legacy of Michael Jackson. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 
I want to turn your attention to something that is always vying for our attention. Capital C, Celebrity. Specifically, I want to talk about celebrity and legacy. How the famous tell us to remember them. How we actually look back on them. And ultimately, what that says about us. And today, we're applying this to Michael Jackson. Oof. Billie Jean is and has always been a perfect pop song. But did anyone else cringe a little bit when hearing it? Or was that just me? Ever since his death and the release of the searing documentary, Leaving Neverland, many are reconsidering playing Michael Jackson at their wedding or putting him on their playlists. But his influence still reigns supreme. Journalists Jay Smooth and Leon Nafok are out with a new investigative podcast about MJ's legacy. It's called Think Twice. And it's a closer look at how Michael actually sat in the driver's seat with his public persona and how the public grapples, or doesn't, with his memory. Jay, Leon, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, Brittany. Okay, so to start off, something that really grabbed me about this series was Michael Jackson's penchant for creating the mythology that existed around him. That was something that I thought I totally understood. I remember being a kid and seeing his face on tabloids and he was like, had a veil on a military jacket. And he was like, you know, people were mobbing him and they're passing out at concerts. And I'm like, oh my God, being famous seems terrible. Like It seems like the worst thing that could happen to a person. So much of Michael's celebrity narrative was about him being hounded by the merciless press. He made a song and a video about it. Leave me alone. I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. But- in reality, he seemed to collaborate with them quite a bit, which is something I did not know and really understand until I listened to this series. I mean, at one point in the series, you speak to the editor of the National Enquirer about the stories that Michael's team fed to the tabloid. I wonder, in what ways did Michael contribute to the hoopla around him? Jay, I want to hear from you first. Yeah, and there's no question Michael lived with a level of public scrutiny that we could never imagine. Um, and that had mm. to do things to someone's mental health. But we definitely learned while working on this series that he was an active participant in helping to build this mythology. And even as you saw him lamenting, how dare they show these pictures of me in a hyperbaric chamber and make it out like something right. it wasn't, we we learned directly that this was something Michael and his team pitched to the Inquirer. Like, let's put these pictures of me in a hyperbaric chamber. It was in some ways impressive to learn how savvy and sophisticated Michael was about trying to shape and control this persona. But then you see after a certain point, it becomes bigger than he can control and goes to places he didn't want it to go. And he's sort of eventually being pulled along in this tidal wave of people discovering his levels of peculiarity that are a little more peculiar than he wanted people to think. I think one of Michael Jackson's most enduring narratives was that he was just a big kid, never got a real childhood. And that's why he had to like name his, you know, compound Neverland Ranch and like, or why he felt that he related so deeply to the children's movie Blank Check, which I saw in theaters because I was six when it came out, which was the age appropriate audience for that movie. Um, he felt like he related to this kid who suddenly came into a bunch of money and was able to just like, I don't know, like, Build a roller coaster in his backyard or something like that. He posited himself 
as a real-life Peter Pan. But you all found tape and a lot of interviews from friends and business associates that paint him as very much an adult who was intentional about his public persona. Talk to me about that dichotomy. Leon, I'd love to hear from you. Taking a step back from his music, I think he benefited very strongly from the Peter Pan narrative that you were just talking about. I think people wanted to believe that. Mm -hmm. And it was a very powerful story and one that I think Michael's camp really endorsed. And there are just these like flashes of, I I don't want to say like cunning in a bad way, but just like a real shrewd kind of sense of the business world, the music industry, how to build an image, like how to use your power in a room with if you're in the room with MTV executives and they're not playing your video because they don't play videos by by black artists. Mm-hmm. Or if you're in a, in a room and you want the world to start calling you the king of pop, how do you flex your muscle as as an entertainer? Like he knew how to move those levers. And I think that doesn't quite square sometimes with the image of the naive Peter Pan that people would prefer to imagine him as. Coming up. We're getting into the effectiveness of Michael Jackson's myth-making and asking whether or not he's reached a level of fame that makes him uncancelable. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper how to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in Black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I think that the effectiveness of his myth-making is also ultimately what protected him from the type of scrutiny and skepticism, frankly, that some other famous alleged abusers have experienced. That is, uh, until the release of the documentary Leaving Neverland back in 2019, in which two men alleged that they were sexually abused by Jackson as children. Um, The documentary was called into question by some fans and others and the Jackson estate. And ultimately, I believe it was removed from HBO at the time. But It was a sensation nonetheless, and it really affected a lot of fans who perhaps didn't believe the previous allegations. And you spoke to to one of those people, at least one of those people on the show. You note in your series that up until that documentary, and I thought this was so pivotal, but up until the documentary, we hadn't really heard from any of the boys who Jackson was alleged to have abused. We'd only really heard from Michael. Jay, How do you think that affected the public's perception of that whole situation? 
it was a crossroads for a lot of us where something we had told ourselves, well, we'll probably never know for sure. It became, well, this feels hard to deny after watching these folks speak about their experience. And that's certainly not the conclusion everyone came to. And I'm not here to prescribe what conclusion anyone should have drawn. But I think for a lot of us, that was a difficult crossroads coming to terms with what we saw. Mm. I think part of the reason why thinking about Michael Jackson and what to do with your feelings about him or how you want to think about him or continue to incorporate his music or legacy in your life is just because he's, I mean, the word iconic is thrown around a lot, but he's literally iconic. Everybody knows what it means when you see someone moonwalk or when you see one white glove. Everybody knows what that means. Iconography. Um, And I think that the series also does a really impressive job of digging into the idea of Michael Jackson as an icon. We had a recent conversation on this show about Marilyn Monroe as a uniquely American icon, like as in not only was she hugely famous, but her life story intersects with so many other major American institutions and movements. And I think of Michael Jackson the same way. He's got the rags to riches story, the Calvinist work ethic, Motown, Studio 54, MTV, Saturday morning cartoons. I could go on. Um, Leon, how do you think about Michael Jackson as an icon of Americana? What you see is that he has become only more iconic because he's gone. Mm. And I think like one of the questions I had going into this was, was Michael, quote unquote, canceled or not? Like, I just I couldn't Mm. tell. I like I feel like there's a period of time after the release of Leaving Neverland when people like at least in my social circle were all like, can we still listen to Michael? Can we still have Billie Jean on the playlist for our wedding? Right. And for some people, that was like a very personal question. Like, can I still listen to Michael Jackson and enjoy it and not only think about these allegations? And for other people, it was more about like, is it okay to admit that I still like this? And I think we realized when we started making the show that like, a lot of the hand-wringing that, like, I remember from the period immediately after leaving Neverland mm-hmm. has been much less visible, like, in the years since. Like, there's a musical based on his life story and using all of his hit songs. It's, like, doing huge, amazing on Broadway. Huge on Broadway. Yeah, like, it's opening in Los Angeles soon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Drake fan. Uh, <laughs> My condolences. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we can talk about that another time. Uh Drake, like, had a song on Scorpion, I think, where he sampled, like, an old Michael Jackson demo. And Mm -hmm. he was on tour, and he stopped playing that song. But then, like, fast forward to, like, last year, and Drake is referencing him in the songs again, and it's fine. And so we just wanted to know, like, well, where are we we at with this? Like, is there a a conventional wisdom that, like, okay, like, we have moved on? Or uh, is it the case that people are still struggling with this privately, even though... When you look at like something like the MJ musical, it does seem like for many, many people, the allegations are at best a footnote, which they are in the musical. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that's even too strong. They don't really talk about the allegations at all in the musical because it, it the plot cuts off right before they were first leveled. Right. If you imagine all these things happening now, post Me Too, like most celebrities, I don't think would survive these kinds of allegations. And he really has. Maybe it helps that he's dead and we don't have to like look at him and make a decision about him or maybe it's because the music is just too good you know and we just can't let go or maybe it's because of all these different ways that he influenced the world around him and like pioneered so many different things that we now take for granted that you couldn't 
separate him or take him out of our culture or cancel him if you wanted to. Mm, mm. That kind of fame, Michael Jackson's fame, is a product of the American monoculture of the past. Pop culture is so fragmented now. I, It's hard to imagine just how immense that sort of recognition Ignition, um was like Michael Jackson in the 80s. It's hard for me to fathom. Is there anyone of, of younger generations? <clears throat> Is there anyone of younger generations? Let me finish this. I had a little frog in my throat. Um, but is there anyone of younger generations that you could think of with that kind of all-encompassing, inescapable, inescapable fame today? Taylor Swift, maybe? I forgot about her. I was we were naming people yesterday, <laughs> okay, and she did not even come to mind. Own. But you're right; I am aware of her. That's true. I guess Beyonce is the person <laughs> that comes to mind for me. But it is so difficult to compare any of these to what a celebrity or any pop culture phenomenon could be back in those days. I was just watching uh, Danny DeVito talking about his early days on the sitcom Taxi, and how an oh, episode yeah. of Taxi might have thirty, forty, fifty million people watching it on a particular evening, and the show, the, so nuts. the shows that we all feel like we're obsessing over today <laughs> might be getting one tenth of that. So right. there really was a potential for monoculture that does not exist nowadays. I'm not sure it's possible to have a star of the magnitude of Michael Jackson back in the days. No. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there's more people now who feel really famous to the, like they f- themselves feel famous because they have mm-hmm. a million followers on Instagram, but like their cultural footprint does not really like track with that you know Mm. i think you're totally right Brittany. that there is no one as big as him and there never will be again you know the super bowl halftime show i feel like is like the one of the last remaining you know institutions of the monoculture that still Mm, uh carries weight and it's not a surprise to learn that in fact that began with michael jackson in 1993 he was invited to perform at the super bowl in what was then a very novel gesture like they weren't doing shows like that in in the middle of the super bowl before they were doing like little parades and and ice skating routines and stuff and michael jackson took that stage and and he created a new template for what that show could be and i think you see every year now like who's it going to be who's big enough Mm. you know yeah and usually you can't really think of anyone uh other than a few people i mean like rihanna made perfect sense but like i think the people booking those halftime shows will have an increasingly hard time finding people who are that universal Hmm. I also think that to a certain extent that his uncancelability is kind of is related to that like monocultural fame. It's like for someone to be that big, it's really difficult to cancel them. Some people, they can delete their Twitter account, their Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be like they were never here. Um, You know, on that note, to close, you all have made this series You even saw the Michael Jackson Broadway musical together for the show. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you still listen to Michael Jackson's music? Like, is Michael Jackson canceled to you? No, he's not canceled to me. Like, I do still really happily listen to my favorite Michael Jackson songs. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, this question of, like, can you separate the art from the artist, like... My short answer is yes, at least in theory, right? I think in practice, the truth is we bring so much to the art we consume. We bring our own memories. We bring everything we know about the artist. We we, we can't not. And so I guess my feeling is like we might as well know as much as we can. And 
my belief is that you enrich your experience of art by knowing more. Mm. You don't like somehow contaminate mm. it with impurity by bringing to it like whatever it is you happen to to know. And there's probably people out there who haven't been listening to Michael Jackson since leaving Neverland. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like imagine someone listening to this podcast and being able to again, not because like we have set out to exonerate him or not because we've like set out, set out to make an argument that it doesn't matter. I want to believe that hearing the whole story and hearing it at the level of depth that we've presented it, like actually makes it easier to not just have this binary reaction of like, can't engage. Hmm. What about you, Jay? I can't say that I pull up his music and listen to it on my headphones by myself that often anymore, but I, obviously encounter Mm. his music every day out in the world and how it hits me will vary pretty widely. I might be sitting in an Uber one day and he puts Michael on and I think to myself, okay, we're really doing that. Or another time I'll be at a party and they'll mix in baby be mine after some other seventies joints. And it'll just Mm. make sense. It'll fit with the vibe of the party and I'll be rocking along with it. And I, I definitely can't say that there's a correct way to compartmentalize these things. There's so much compartmentalization we do with most of the pop culture that we enjoy, especially, you know, I've said before, I think compartmentalizing is like the sixth element of hip hop. I mean, (laughs) you know, you can't be a lifelong hip hopper and not have spent time listening to music you love where they're saying things you don't love. There's a line from Stevie Wonder that I quote often, uh, make sure when you say you're in it, but not of it, you're not making to make this world a place sometimes called hell. Mm. I can't say there's a right or wrong way to draw those lines for yourself, but I think trying to be aware and ask yourself, am I engaging with this in a way that's really healthy and is making sure that the world I share with survivors of abuse are going to feel safe to share space with me and feel safe to come out and tell their stories. I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but I think that's something we all try to figure out. And I think this series in some ways is a documentation of that process. Hmm. Those are both very thoughtful answers. And thank you so much uh, for the series and also for coming here today to talking with me about it. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Brittany. I really appreciate you having us on. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. That was Jay Smooth and Leon Nafok, the hosts of Think Twice, a new investigative podcast looking at Michael Jackson's legacy. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. This episode was edited by Jessica Placek, Bilal Qureshi. Engineering support came from Neil Rauch, Maggie Luthar. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.